Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, a very special episode coming to you from sunny California. Or I wish, that's ex- that's where we were. Um, we're not in California, although in Josh's case he's in sunny Sydney, I'm in cloudy Melbourne. But we are going to talk about a conference that recently happened in sunny California, and that is the ASCO-GU Summary. And this is a conference, one of the many tumor stream conferences that happens around the world, focusing on genitourinary cancer. And Josh, there is a lot to get through today. I agree, Michael. There's some fascinating trials and updates to talk about, some plant-based diets to discuss, and overall, immunotherapy takes the center stage once again. As it always does. And uh, for our listeners, I don't know if you've noticed, but Josh has been working on his enunciation this week. So I hope that you can uh, definitely understand him a little bit better than our previous 27 episodes. But let's get started because, Josh, you're going to start us off with one of your uh, prostate trials, I believe. You are correct, Michael. This is something I use quite often in clinic now, and so I'm excited to talk about the overall survival of this study. To give a brief background, everything in prostate cancer has moved from the metastatic, so the castrate-resistant metastatic setting, to the castrate-sensitive metastatic setting, and we're moving all of our treatment earlier and earlier depending on a number of factors. And there are questions that remain, such as, What do we do when we treat people earlier in the later lines? But that's another conversation. The study I will discuss today, Mikey, is the efficacy and safety of darolutamide in combination with androgen deprivation therapy, ADT, and docetaxel by disease volume and disease risk in the phase three ARISENS trial. Going into this trial, the the backbone of it is essentially triplet therapy, versus doublet therapy. So triplet being darolutamide plus ADT plus docetaxel. And we knew that this significantly reduced the risk of death by 32.5%. That's already been established in the previous trials with a hazard ratio of 0.68 versus placebo plus ADT and docetaxel. Um, So as you can see, the placebo was the equivalent and we supplemented darolutamide for this. And this is in the metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. There were similar adverse events, but I guess the question that was remaining is the effect of darolutamide on overall survival. With respect to the methods, it was a one-to-one randomized trial with triplet therapy versus doublet therapy. They looked at high-volume disease, and that was defined as visceral metastases and or greater than four bone metastases, with one beyond the vertebral column as per the charted criteria. We'll link that in the description. High-risk disease was defined as greater than two factors, so high Gleason, lots of bony mets, presence of metastatic visceral metastases based on the latitude criteria. Of the, the patients, there were 1,305 that were analysed, and I think I'm just going to skip to the results, Michael. But essentially, in this particular trial, in patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, the benefit of early treatment intensification versus standard of care showed 
overall survival. That's that's pretty amazing. So if we break it down in the de novo disease status, the hazard ratio, overall survival hazard ratio was 0.71 and was statistically significant. In the high volume disease, the hazard ratio was 0.69, also statistically significant. In the low volume disease, there was no evidence of statistical benefit. So that crossed the statistical confidence interval of one. But in the high risk disease, again, it was still statistically significant with a overall survival of 0.71. So overall, Mikey, what they found is that the benefits of early treatment intensification does improve overall survival in these metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancers. And Josh, I guess because, as you said, in the prostate cancer setting, pretty much every agent that is currently approved for treatment of castration-resistant prostate cancer, the companies and the investigators of these trials are trying to bring it into the castrate-sensitive space. We've seen that with abiraterone, we've seen it with enzalutamide, but each of those agents has its own cornucopia of toxicities. Now, I haven't used darolutamide very much. I've heard that it's usually actually better tolerated than its two rivals, but in your experience, what sort of side effects should our listeners be counselling their patients on with regards to darolutamide? Michael, the wonderful thing about darolutamide is it has fewer side effects than all of its brothers and sisters. And I mean, when patients I put on it have zero side effects, not saying that that's not a potential problem, but what we do see is hypertension is something you do need to monitor along with that of a rash and occasional hepatotoxicity and after elders or my elders. So what you should do, check their blood pressure every time they come into clinic, check their liver function test, which you're probably doing with their baseline blood functions as well. And one of the rare side effects in the late setting for darolutamide is cardiotoxicity with a reduction of their left ventricular ejection fraction. It takes influence, some might say, from both abiraterone and enzalutamide in terms of his side effect profile. Abiraterone can cause cardiac toxicity, usually through fluid retention, and enzalutamide can cause quite early onset liver toxicity. So darolutamide can cause both of those, but less frequently. Is that fair to say? I think you're, yeah, you're right about that, Michael. And the patients I put on don't even really complain of fatigue. And I found with abiraterone and enzalutamide fatigue is one of those big side effects that a lot of my patients are like, Josh, I'm just tired all the time. So that's a nice change I found. Yeah, that's definitely very important, especially because a lot of the patients getting these drugs are quite elderly and tired as a base, at a baseline. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Mikey, why don't you tell me about one of your trials? How about you talk about CarboPoint? Sounds good. CarboPoint is an interesting study. So I, I guess we should call it CaboPoint because it's Cabo's antonym. But anyway, CarboPoint sounds... Us in Sydney call it... Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm sure your pronunciation is far better than mine. Note the enunciation of the T in that sentence, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) You shouldn't have told me that. Um, So Cabo Point is an interesting study because it has a lot of practical applications, a a lot of uh, practical information. We know that for probably the majority of patients that we see with metastatic renal cell cancer, they fall into the IMDC intermediate or high risk, largely because if you present with de novo metastatic disease, you are automatically intermediate risk. So it doesn't take very much for you to be in one of the patient cohorts that benefits from ipilimumab and nivolumab. The question that many people have asked 
of this is after Epinevo stops working, which it inevitably does, what is the best agent to use? Now, Capo Point doesn't answer that. I'll say that right off the bat because it is a single arm phase two study examining the efficacy by means of overall response rate of cabozantinib after initial therapy. And there were two cohorts. Cohort B was patients with disease progression after checkpoint inhibitor and VEGF-targeted therapy, so the Checkmate 90R, the uh, CLEAR trial, uh, the TKI combination with immunotherapy. That, to me, is less interesting. But the cohort A involved patients with disease progression after dual checkpoint inhibitor blockade. So that's ipilimumab and nivolumab. The study is ongoing. That's the other thing to say. So this is only a interim analysis that was planned after 80% of patients in cohort A reached at least three months of treatment. The primary endpoint of the CABO point trial in cohort A was uh, overall response rate per resist, which, uh, Josh, we should probably do a do a, a whole episode on at some point for our more research-inclined listeners. Definitely. Resist is an important thing, especially if you do anything in trials, and most oncologists do something Something in, in trials. trials, exactly. The secondary endpoints, though, were overall response rate in cohort B, overall response rate in both cohorts, time and duration of response, disease control rate, uh, progression-free survival, overall survival and change in disease-related symptoms, as well as the usual safety and tolerability. So this interim analysis did show some very interesting data. So in terms of the overall population, it was a relatively small study with 88 people involved, but the overall response rate was 29.5%. And that might not sound like much, but remember that response rates typically take a big nosedive after first-line therapy. Even in first-line therapy, a lot of the overall response rates are not super impressive, but they particularly start to drop after people progress through that first-line therapy. But in terms of cohort A, the response rate was slightly higher, so 31.7% in 60 people. The divide is interesting because... No one had a complete response, which you sort of expect in these studies, but it's not infrequent to have at least one person that has a complete response just because of more of because of the biology of their disease than anything else. But 33% had a partial response, 50% had stable disease, and only 15% had progressive disease, which to me seems pretty good. My question is, if you had a patient and they sat in your waiting room and said, you've progressed on your immunotherapy, but we have potential treatment with approximately 50% having either stable disease or reduction in their disease burden, would you be happy discussing that with your patient? Josh, I guess it is difficult to say based purely on this trial because it's not a comparative trial. So once people go through the immunotherapy rigmarole in the first line, there are a number of second-line TKIs to choose from. And the evidence, at least in the first-line setting, is that they're all probably pretty much the same. So sunitinib, pazopinib, cabozantinib, lenvatinib, axitinib is the other one. That's the one I always forget because I never use it. But 
the all of these, as far as we can tell in the first line setting, are broadly similar. Now, if we cherry pick and do a cross-trial comparison, which we never do and we never should do, there was a, a, a real-world retrospective trial on second-line sunitinib following first-line therapy with some form of immunotherapy. It wasn't necessarily ipinevo. But the overall response rate with sunitinib was 22.5%. It was a slightly larger study with 102 patients, but the response rate numerically is lower. Now, is that significant? We don't know. But what we can say is that it is in the ballpark yeah. of the of the results expressed in the CABO point trial. So to answer, coming back way back after that little um, uh, detour into the wilds of uh, retrospective analyses. But um, to your original question, it is definitely an option. It's definitely an option. Is it the best option? We don't know. And it would be very interesting to have a large study that mm-hmm. compares outcomes across different TKIs in the second-line setting. But it's definitely not abnormally bad, it's not like people with other TKIs are getting response rates of 50%. Let's just put it that way. The other thing to mention, I know we're not sort of harping on the uh, demographics at all, but the greatest representation among favourable, intermediate and poor risk, according to the IMDC, was intermediate with 46% of patients having intermediate risk disease. So that's cabopoint, and it suggests that cabozantinib in the second-line setting is an option uh, for patients with disease that is uh, progressed through dual checkpoint inhibitor blockade. It is worth noting as well that cohort B that I mentioned briefly, the response was lesser with an overall response rate of 25%, but that sort of stands to reason in that these are patients that have already received a anti-VEGF TKI. So watch this space. If you're in the clinic, coming back to Josh's uh, hypothetical, and you're talking to patients, you're trying to pick a TKI, you probably can't go wrong. But also, again, remember that TKIs have different side effect profiles as well. So you need to tailor those to your patient. Josh, from one targeted therapy to another, why don't you take us through the exciting world of prostate cancer? And (laughs) (laughs) it's such an exciting world. But uh, prostate cancer and the use of PARP inhibitors with Talapro2. I would love to talk about Talapro2. And ironically, doing my fellowship in prostate cancer, I am very excited about this. So Talapro2 is a phase three study looking at talazoparib or Tala plus enzalutamide versus placebo plus enzalutamide in the first line setting of patients with metastatic carcero-resistant prostate cancer. So these are patients who have already progressed on this, the basic ADT, and we're looking at future lines of therapy. The interesting thing of this particular drug, or talazoparib, is that it targets the HRR, which is a homologous recombination deficiency, so HRD. So a homologous recombination deficiency is a tumour characteristic that is defined by the inability to inaccurately repair double-strand breaks in DNA via homologous recombination. And Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is when you've got something that attaches or attacks that, it essentially stops it from trying to repair it. So everything just ends up dying or the cells die because you can't, you don't have inappropriate repair, you just don't have repair. 
Exactly, because most of these cancers are, in effect, missing one of the two copies of the gene that facilitates DNA repair. So they're already deficient. That's the D in the HRD. And if you knock out the one remaining copy, then they have absolutely no ability to repair DNA. And even cancer can't survive that. That's it. And that's, the, that's I guess, the, the glory of PARP inhibitors, which ta- um, talazoparib or TALA is. So this trial, it was a one-to-one. They were randomized to either the intervention arm or the control arm. Like all of our trials, they stratified it according to ECOG. But in, interestingly, they also stratified it to whether you had the HRR gene alteration status. And that's something I want to focus on today when I'm talking about my results. So the outcomes or the endpoints was progression-free survival. And what they found was as followed. In the intervention arm, PFS was not reached versus 21.9 months in the control arm, which is just enzalutamide with a hazard ratio of 0.63, statistically significant. Now, it was also improved in the HRR deficient with a hazard ratio of 0.46. So the first number I spoke was everyone. The second number I've mentioned is just with a HRR deficiency. And you're like, oh, that's great, Josh. Now we're going to say when the HRR non-deficient, it's not going to work. But here's the catch. It still works. So HRR non-deficient or unknown still has a hazard ratio of 0.7. So why, while it's not as efficient or effective at controlling the cancer than let's say the HRR deficient, it still has an effect. And I have zero idea why, except maybe there's something to do with recombination that we don't pick up on, that there still is damage and there still is inaccurate repair. And that's why we still get the efficacy. Josh, do you know how they actually defined HRD? Because that's something else that's a bit contentious. I know in the, uh, what was it, the solo trials for ovarian cancer, they sort of had a cutoff. Maybe it was solo, I can't remember. But one of the trials where they uh, looked at PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer, they had a cutoff. And the most famous uh, HR um, homologous repair gene is, of course, BRCA, BRCA1, yep. BRCA2. But there is a smorgasbord of other genes, ATM, PALB2, RAD51. There's a whole, whole list of uh, genes that contribute to HRD. Do you know in Talapro how they first assessed and defined HRD status? Because if they have, I guess, a, a higher cutoff for defining HRD and that you need to have more uh, gene problems to qualify as HRD, then that might explain why the uh, non-HRD cohort also did well, because they might have a a, a sprinkling of deficiency. Michael, that is a wonderful question, and I I do not know the answer. It's not in the articles I read. But one thing I have noticed with this particular trial is that the HRR I guess, sufficient or non-deficient, it was clumped with the unknown. So patients who are unknown are also in this category. So potentially they actually do have a HRR gene alteration, but it just hasn't been picked up or reported. So moving on to the other parts of this trial, PSA response was in greater than 50% of patients. And what I did notice is that this, the toxicity profile is actually higher in the intervention arm. So 71.9 versus 40% had grade three or four treatment emergent events. Most common was that of anemia, low neutrophils, low platelet counts, hypertension, 
as well. And there was discontinuation of nearly 20% of patients in the intervention arm and about 10% of patients in the control arm, 10 or 12%. So that's something to, I guess, talk about with this treatment. While it definitely is effective and we don't have overall survival data just yet, there is still a higher toxicity burden and adverse event burden that might preclude some patients being on this particular treatment. Again, there's going to be the robust, fit, young patients that you want to try and promote, I guess, longevity as much as possible, and this would be a treatment option for them. It will be very interesting to see if this becomes a broadly applied treatment in addition to our castration-resistant treatment algorithms, because the big thing with Olaparib um, and Niraparib in this space is that without the HRD, which accounts for, I think, about 10% of all prostate cancer patients, apologies if that's incorrect, but it's about somewhere in that ballpark, the PARP inhibitors don't really work. So the fact that, at least in this early setting, Talazoparib does appear to have an effect regardless of your HRD status, that's very exciting. It is very exciting. And I think take what they say in a conclusion with a grain of salt. Toxicity was generally manageable. I think to the individual, that might be they might disagree with that, but it's just an interesting little sidebar that they've, they've highlighted. I don't think I've ever seen a study that has the phrase toxicity was generally intolerable. That's exactly it. Mikey, thank you for listening to my dulcet tones. Let's move to your next trial. Why don't we talk about neoadjuvant pembrolizumab in the HCRNGU14-188. What a mouthful. Such a catchy name, as they often are. This is yet another neoadjuvant urothelial cancer study. And there was a lot of these, obviously, at ASCO-GU, but they're all very interesting because just as breast cancer is moving from adjuvant to neoadjuvant, just as just as treatment of prostate cancer is moving from castration-resistant to castration-sensitive, urothelial cancer treatment is really starting to focus on this neoadjuvant question. There's a lot of data on cisgem, there's a lot of data on dose-dense MVAC, but obviously, as we've mentioned, there are lots of barriers and problems to that. So this study, which Josh has already given us the full name of, I'm not going to repeat it, is a phase 1b slash 2 study looking at another combination of chemo and immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting for patients with T2 to 4a N0 and M0 disease. So patients with moderate to very large sized tumors with no nodal or metastatic deposits. So there were two cohorts with this study. Patients in cohort A were the cisplatin-eligible patients, and they received four 21-day cycles of gemcitabine and cisplatin with pembrolizumab given on day eight of these cycles, followed by an additional fifth dose of pembrolizumab that was given after completion of the chemotherapy component. Patients in cohort B were the cisplatin-ineligible patients who received four 28-day cycles of gemcitabine and pembrolizumab. And we'll include a link to the actual schema of this study because it is quite difficult to say in words. So it's much better uh, to it's much better to illustrate it with pictures and multicolored arrows as they've done here. So that'll be in the description. I love multicolored arrows, Michael. 
multicolored arrows are the best. If you've got a study schema, they're always a very good way to get your point across. The primary endpoint was a pathological muscle invasive response, or PAIR, and the secondary endpoints were pathological complete response rate, 18-month recurrence-free survival, 36-month overall survival, and definitive surgery rate. So they've set some pretty ambitious targets here with the 18-month RFS and 36-month OS targets. Again, as with all of my studies, Josh, you seem to be getting the big studies this week and I'm getting all of the small experimental stuff, which is fun. Um, Cohort A, which is a cisplatin cohort, had 43 patients and cohort B had 38 patients. In terms of response rates, so in cohort A, the PAIR rate was 61%, the pathological complete response rate was 44% and the definitive surgery rate was 88%. So those are pretty good numbers. If you've got almost 50% of patients getting a pathological complete response from this regimen, that is a win. Interestingly, for cisplatin ineligible patients, the PAIR rate was lower, 52%, but the pathological complete response rate was 45%. So actually a single solitary percentage point better than the cisplatin group. Don't ask me to explain that one. Uh, but it is very interesting. Definitive surgery rate was 87%. So again, a single solitary percentage point less. The 18-month recurrence-free survival and the 36-month overall survival are both very much in the favour of cisplatin. So in cohort A, the 18-month recurrence-free survival was 82%. Cohort B, it was 65%, significantly lower. In the 36-month overall survival rates were 79% and 66% respectively. So the trial met its primary endpoints in both cohorts, and you're looking at, again, for a very difficult-to-treat cancer, very good outcomes overall. Again, it says that immortal phrase, the regimens were (laughs) well-tolerated, even though uh, grade 3... Uh, rates of anemia were 29%, so almost 30% of patients are having grade 3 anemia, and almost a quarter of patients are having grade 3 neutropenia. So still very significant, but apparently it was well tolerated. So this is another regimen that is jostling for space in what is rapidly becoming a very crowded area as far as therapeutics go Mm. in the neoadjuvant urothelial setting. It's an interesting one, isn't it, Michael? And my only caveat or question to this is, yes, the cisplatin eligible definitely had better outcomes based on the data you just so kindly told our listeners. But again, you've got to say, if they're cisplatin ineligible, you have to ask the question, why? What's the limitations? And is that going to influence overall outcomes anyway? So I'd love to see both cohorts be cisplatin eligible and one cohort potentially not get that. But again, ethically, you probably can't do that. Probably not. But it is a very good question. I mean, in my experience, the most common reasons for cisplatin ineligibility, particularly in the urothelial space, are renal impairment. But um, obviously the risk of ototoxicity is Josh's jabbing a finger at his ear now. Um, you can't see it, but he's, he's yeah, pointing at his uh, headphones. Jabbing away. Jabbing away. Um, od- the risk of ototoxicity is obviously high as well. 
Moving right along, Josh, you've just told us about Talazoparib. Yep. So why don't you tell us about Alaparib, which is its older, more venerable sibling, in combination with abiraterone as first-line therapy for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer? I'd love to, Michael. And I think I don't have to go through a lot of this trial because it's going to be very similar to the previous trial, just two different drugs, really. Abiraterone and enzalutamide are of the same class, and Alaparib and Talazoparib are also of the same class. So the background of Propel uh, is already known to have met its primary endpoints, which showed significant radiographic progression-free survival in the metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer setting versus the control arm without Olaparib, a hazard ratio of 0.66, and it was statistically significant. There was also a trend towards overall survival benefit at the previous analysis, although I think it wasn't statistically significant, but it was numerically significant. Um, which is interesting, right? So they wanted to report of the overall survival and the cutoff date for that was the 10th of December, 2022. This was a double-blinded, randomised phase three trial. It's nice to have a blinded trial for once um, in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with abiraterone. Again, with these, they had foundation testing looking at homologous recombination repair mutations. It was good to know what that is. And then they were then randomised to either Olaparib or placebo plus Abby and prednisolone. Pred, which is a steroid, always goes with this. The results, and I guess the updated results, there is a consistent trend towards overall survival benefit in the intention to treat population in the abiraterone and Olaparib versus abiraterone and placebo. Maturity was 47.9% and the hazard ratio was 0.81. Again, it crosses that interval of one and has a p-value of 0.0544. So Ooh, very, very so close. close. Sorry, elaborate. Um, the median overall survival, so this is when I said it was numerical, was 42.1 months versus 34.7 months respectively. Uh, and that was in the, like the other trial, the HRR mutant, the non-HRR mutant, and the BRCA mutation and non-BRCA mutation were all favourable, which again goes into my prior discussion saying, what are we missing? That means this is actually working. Again, most common grade 3 adverse event was anemia. So what can we say? The BRCA mutation uh, was significantly benefited with a hazard ratio of 0.29. The non-BRCA statistical potential benefit but not statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.91 and the HRR mutant was 0.66. So as we can see, while there was a numerical benefit in those that were not homologous combination repair deficient, it was definitely those that were definitely saw a benefit, but overall in the whole population, there was also a benefit. So Michael, as a conclusion to this, you can definitely recommend these to your patients who have the HRR mutant or the BRCA mutation. But with the other ones, yeah, I guess while there's a numerical benefit, there's not a statistical benefit. And again, you have to look at the toxicities and the cost to the patient. It does reinforce, though, the importance of testing your patients for BRCA mutations. It is probably going to go the way of... BRCA mutation testing in breast cancer, where we just do it for everybody. 
Um, but it is very important to keep in mind. That's it, Michael. And it'll be interesting to see who takes the trophy between these two PARP inhibitors. And that's a wonderful segue to your next trial, which is the Trophy U01 <laughs> trial. Tell me about this. Oh, that was an excellent segue. By far the best one we've had today. So many of our listeners will be familiar with sasituzumab govotecan. It is a novel TROP2-directed antibody drug conjugate combining sasituzumab, which is the antibody, and govotecan, which is the chemotherapy component. It has previously or recently been uh, used with significant effect in breast cancer, particularly the triple negative space with the ASCENT trial. But it also has some evidence with urothelial cancer. So it has demonstrated an objective response rate of 27%, a median duration of response of 7.2 months, and a median overall survival of 10 months. And this is in the patients who had progression after platinum and checkpoint inhibitor therapies in the TROPHY-U01 cohort 1 study. So basically, this is very much like the stampede trials in prostate cancer where they have all of these different cohorts under the stampede name but they're sort of different individual trials even if they are related so results were promising in the cohort one study this is the cohort two study which was a phase two study of sasituzumab govotecan in patients with metastatic urothelial cancer who progressed after checkpoint inhibitors but were platinum ineligible at the start of the study coming up to that platinum ineligibility wall. So the outcomes for this study, patients were assessed on the overall response rate, with the secondary outcomes being duration of response, clinical benefit rate, and progression-free survival. Michael, I can't handle the the, the delay. I need to know the answer. Well, this is the next generation of, you know, this is immunotherapy well it's not immunotherapy but it's 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 magical it's a magical drug so please just tell me tell me what their pfs was i need to know that's josh's way of telling me to hurry up basically no, it's not it's <laughs> so in terms of objective response rate it was observed in 32 percent of patients which is very very good for a what is a sec- effectively a second to third line treatment for comparison in the usual clinical context for patients who couldn't have platinums at the outset, we would be looking at something like single-agent paclitaxel, which I don't even need to look it up. I can almost guarantee the response rate will be significantly lower than 32%. Stable disease was observed in an additional 13 patients, which was 34%, with four patients having stable disease for at least six months. So if you include stable disease, we're looking at 66% of patients who do not have progressive disease at the time of their first assessment. Uh, The overall clinical benefit, sort of leading on from from that, defined as a complete response, partial response, or stable disease for at least six months was observed in 42% of patients. So almost half of patients are having no disease progression for at least six months. The median time to response was 1.4 months and the median duration response was 5.6 months. In terms of progression-free and overall survival, the median PFS was 5.6 months, as just mentioned. The median overall survival was 13.5 months, which is really good for later-line therapy in a notoriously difficult-to-treat malignancy. 
So sasituzumab govotecan, it's already made waves in the breast space. It's also being studied in the colorectal space. But look out for it in a chemotherapy infusion center near you in the bladder cancer setting. Michael, I think we can probably expect to see this drug in most tumor streams at some point. I would agree with that. I don't think there's been a tumor stream in which SG has been studied where it hasn't had an effect. That is my last study, Josh, but you have one last study to talk about. And this is something for the first time, for the first time, I think on this show, it's an oncology for the inquisitive mind. First, we're going to talk about a dietary study. Right, let's do this in 30 seconds or less. So this was the CAPTURE study, which is a cancer of the prostate strategic urologic reserve endeavor study. Essentially, it was looking at diets and looking at plant-based diets, right? And the summary was, an, it was an observational analysis, 2,000 patients between the ages of 43 and 102, Michael, were diagnosed with T1 to T3A stage prostate cancer. They were followed up and they were, their diets were looked at. And what they found was that participants who reported eating a diet highest in plants had a 52% lower risk of progression and a 53% lower risk of recurrence compared to participants who reported the lowest amount of plants in their diet. This association did not vary by age, walking pace, grade, or stage. That's the summary. So... If you don't want prostate cancer, eat your veggies. I think that's it. One last thing. 10% of disease progressed over a median of 7.4 years was observed. And patients who reported diets that included the highest amounts of plants had that reduction. Again, there are some questions into how this will influence our treatment of early stage prostate cancer. I think that it's one of those high benefit, low risk uh, interventions. No one's going to have significant side effects from eating too many carrots. So it can be That's it, it can be a recommendation and it would be interesting. I mean, this is a very large study. It's over 2,000 people. But it would be interesting in the uh, overall population if those numbers are replicated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But that's it. That's all we've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening to our ASCO GU extravaganza following on from our ASCO GI extravaganza from a couple of weeks back. We will see you next week. All right. See you then. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. Inquisitive Onc.